Uh, Obama administration has made it abundantly clear that they are foes of the First Amendment. Resolution 1618 that was adopted by the United Nations calls on member states to criminalize denigration of religions, religious hatred. Now, nobody's really in favor of real hatred, but what they're calling hatred is any honest discussion of how jihadists use the texts and teachings of Islam to justify violence and supremacism. And the United States signed on to that. And the United States in 2009, under the Obama administration, co-sponsored a resolution with Egypt that was very similar, that got far less publicity, also calling upon member states to criminalize criticism of religion. Sotomayor and Kagan on the Supreme Court are on record calling for restrictions on the First Amendment. There are numerous other officials throughout the Obama administration who have, are on record calling on for restrictions on the First Amendment. All it takes, mind you, is we already have, by the way, hate crimes laws. Now, what's the difference? If I, if I, outside in the parking lot later, if I hit you and take your wallet, it's a crime. But if I hit you and take your wallet and call you a racial slur, that's a hate crime. What's the difference? Speech. So we already have hate speech laws in the United States because we have hate crimes laws in the United States. All it takes is five justices to uphold a challenge to that and say that hate speech, so-called, is not freedom of speech, not protected under the First Amendment, and the First Amendment is effectively gutted. And we are very, very close to that. Why fight? Um, well, I can only revert to uh, a quote by Martin Niemöller, who was uh, actually a Nazi uh, who ended up uh, changing his stance later on. And his quote said, you know, first, uh, you know, for people who are familiar, first they came for whoever it was, the Catholics and the Protestants and what have you, and the gays, and I didn't speak out. Um, then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a Jew, and later they came for me. And I think that's, you know, obviously a very famous quote, but it's uh, one of the ones that's most telling in terms of how we relinquish our own rights every day by not standing up for something we don't really feel affects us. Uh, but it does, actually. Uh, it's very much like with nanny state laws. Sometimes we say, well, it's, it's totally common sense. We should absolutely wear a seatbelt, or we shouldn't smoke in bars, or you know, trans fats are really bad for you. And so we kind of turn a blind eye because we think it's for the greater good. But uh, what rights are we giving away tomorrow that we will care about? And I think that's one of the main reasons. 
Yeah, there, there was some uh, testimony uh, that's it's actually at the beginning of, of, uh, of the film, uh, Silent Conquest, uh, where uh, Obama's now, I guess he's uh, up for nomination uh, for Secretary of Labor, was asked repeatedly about uh, would, would laws limiting free speech uh, in any way um, targeting a, spe a specific criticism of religion, et cetera, uh, be enacted by this administration potentially, and he refused to answer uh, that question during during congressional testimony. So, so uh, I think that that gives you an insight into the larger process uh, that that Robert uh, alluded to. Combine that with the fact that again, as Lars points out uh, in, in many of his talks that he's given recently. Um, no matter what was said in terms of, of vile Jew hatred, of calling for uh, stoning of, of, of homosexuals or adulterers, etc., by imams in Scandinavia, in Denmark specifically, that was fine. That was free speech. But if Loris or someone else pointed out, well, that's what the man said, that was hate speech. And, and, and so we have a, a parallel situation in this country, as far as I'm concerned. I, I started to read you uh, just a snippet of a fatwa that's issued by the Assembly of Muslim Jurists of America, where, yes, we know they're not in power to do such things, but they are explicitly calling for killing apostates, if they're Muslims who leave the religion, killing people who they feel uh, insult uh, Islam or Muhammad if they're non-Muslims. Um, so uh, we, we have these these parallel phenomena of of the of the application uh, as 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 you put it, Michael, of of restricted speech uh, if if it if it targets uh, cherished uh, groups, and then the ability of these groups themselves to say uh, to, to 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 call for 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 killing of of, of people. So uh, I I I don't think that it's that it's an unfounded fear. Right. Um. I think it's important to, uh, to consider uh, the fact that laws in themselves aren't worth anything unless people are willing to stand up for them and, and, and defend their rights under them. Um, in Denmark, we have two um, articles in our penal code that are uh, not very pretty. We have number 140, which is against blasphemy, uh, a ridiculous concept, as if God needed men's support to, to sustain his power. Um, um, that's an old one. Then we have one called 266B, under which I was uh, indicted, and, and they tried to convict me for hate speech and, and, and racism. Now, that was um, introduced... Uh, 266B was introduced in, in 1971 under the influence of the Soviet Union. Um, the Soviet Union and its allies have tried for, for quite a few years to impose uh, hate speech regulation on free societies, and Denmark and other countries, including the U.S., opposed it. The U.S. has never, of course, adopted that uh, concept because you have, you have the First Amendment. Nevertheless, after a few years of grinding, and, uh, you know, you grind us down, you grind us down every day. Um, it was accepted uh, in 1971, and this is the one that is, uh, that is being applied against people like me and, and, and others. Of course, uh, Muslims can say whatever they want. Um, if you want to say in Denmark, and they do, 
that, of course, uh, lewd women ought to be dug into the ground and have stones thrown at them until they're dead, that's okay. It's also okay to say that apostates from Islam uh, should be killed. Fine, great, nobody has been prosecuted for that. Um, and you can, uh, you can say pretty much anything you want, including uh, that homosexuals uh, should have a wall tumbled over them until they're smashed to, I don't know, ketchup. That's fine, you can say that, but if, if I say that this is what they say, I'll be dragged into court. Um, now, um, I was lucky, uh, fortunate, to have the best lawyer in the country working for me pro bono. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have, uh, wouldn't have had a tie, uh, um, uh, would have been here in my underpants and, and um, um, without teeth in my mouth. Um, so, so I had the benefit of, of uh, this wonderful man uh, who can uh, really read them the riot act. How many can do that? I mean, if you're from the backwoods out in Jutland uh, and, and, and you can't speak English or, or anything else, what do you do? Uh, you give up. So it takes a vigilant citizenship to uphold our fundamental rights. Uh, don't leave it to the politicians and do not please leave it to the journalists. I find that uh, my experience is limited, of course, to, to my own country, 5.5 million people. Um, I find that the upholders of free speech are the common man. Um, the elite, the intellectuals, the professors, the, uh, uh, the clergy... Uh, in the Lutheran Church, which is dominant in Denmark, the chief rabbi of Denmark, um, etc., are quite willing to give it up because they, I don't know why, but, but, and this is, by the way, one thing that I can, one of the useful things I would have wanted to say if I'd remembered it, um, try to analyze the cui bono, who, who benefits from this sort of, of, of uh, um, repression. Somebody must have, uh, think that he or she has an advantage from it. Um, um, I find that the, the, the leading classes, the ruling classes, the elites, not only of Denmark but of Europe, uh, are not the upholders or defenders of free speech. It is the common man and woman. I, I guess uh, the, the one area where I remain somewhat hopeful is the blogosphere, uh, it, it, the internet in general. Um, you know, uh, looking at your own experience, Michael. You know, moving to internet radio. Uh, th thank goodness for that. 
But on the other hand, uh, we know of efforts by major governments, I guess most prominently communist China, to control the internet, to control the blogosphere. Um, so I guess even that uh, could be subjected to, to restrictions. I'm, yeah. I'm 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 afraid to say that I think that that's becoming an increasingly prevalent uh, sentiment, and that um, uh, on the other hand, I think I think the the people that that uh, cherish free speech are becoming more uh, adamant uh, about defending it. But, but I think there's a vast apathy and there's a, a, a lot of fear uh, that's, that's uh, growing in, in the population, and it's, and it's quite frightening. I think, um, I think the elite, um, academia, intelligentsia, members of the, the far left who really control the main pulpits, if you will, mainstream media, um, believe that they're upholding free speech as they see it, as it suits them. And I think they're arrogant enough to think that their voice is the only one that matters and that they control the narrative, that overriding narrative. Um, so everyday people like us who do champion free speech and who do really adhere to its true meaning are increasingly marginalized. We are relegated to the blogs or new media. Uh, I mean, you see it even with uh, more right-leaning media. You will not see a lot of these stories published or publicized. Uh, and if you're not going to see that in right-leaning media, you're certainly not going to see it in the mainstream that carries, you know, um, the loudest voice. So I think that that message, and in terms of what free speech actually means, is being controlled by uh, some very arrogant and uh, misguided people. And, and unfortunately, they are kind of controlling the direction of things. I think that there is less and less appreciation for the freedom of speech, and that it's partly because of the failure of the educational system to impress upon young people why it matters, why it's important. And uh, a, a point that I was actually intending to make earlier but lost it in the rush of uh, all, all the excitement uh, was that the, the steps in which the p critics of Islam and uh, the oppression of Islamic law are being silenced. It's a two-step process, but we saw the second step for the first time with Lars and the assassination attempt. The first step is to demonize us to the extent that we're poison and nobody will, everybody is afraid to deal with us. And then we, they tried to do that with Lars, with the hate speech prosecution, but it didn't work. It was one of the first times that it didn't work and he was not silenced, he was acquitted. Uh, and so was more dangerous to them than ever. And then we see what is the next step in this process with the assassination attempt. There's a great deal of fear behind it. Uh, paradigmatic, I think, was a young woman in a bookstore. A, many years ago, uh, a man went in to a uh, bookstore. He wrote me and he said, I tried to buy one of your books at uh, some famous bookstore in San Francisco, maybe City Lights or something like that. And uh, so he went in and he asked for it. And the, the woman there said, oh, no, we don't carry that racist, bigoted sort of thing. And if we did, we'd get blown up. So you see how in the second part of the clause, she agreed with the thesis of the book that she was denouncing in the first part of the clause as racist and bigoted. 
that in other words, that there is a tendency toward violence in Islam, and if you get out of line, you will be physically threatened. But more and more people don't realize, you know, give me liberty and give me death, or we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. These are concepts that I think have vanished largely from the American body politic, and people don't think that there's something worth risking your life for. And so they think, well, these people, they're going to destroy me and make me into some sort of radioactive hate monger, and then they'll kill me if I get out of line even further. Most people won't, aren't willing to take the risk. But I'll tell you, if we aren't, then they will certainly succeed. I've got a question for the two real journalists, not you, Robert. <laughs> 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 no, my uh, oldest son is a huge Jeff Rachel fan. He's a huge newspaper fan, huge journalism fan. Before I found out the guy was making money, I thought I wanted to be one of you. And I would love the story where free speech was under threat. You know, you can your reputation on it. It's a fighting war. That's a very good question. Um, I don't know. Um, We're here. Well, we, at least we, we are two here. Um, <laughs> one more beautiful than the other. Uh, um, <laughs> We're the only two around, so we showed up. Um, uh, I wanted to say something useful. I, I need a haircut, but... Um, I couldn't have it before I left the country because I cannot uh, walk freely in the, the streets of Copenhagen, so uh, I thought I'd call my sister. Uh, she might uh, then cut me a bit, but uh, I didn't manage to do that. Uh, anyway, um, <clears throat> why are journalists not uh, looking up for, for free speech? I guess it's because they don't think they have anything to say that is in contravention of, of uh, the Sharia law. On the other hand, they make a good living uh, uh, um, carrying to, to, uh, to the new powers that be. Uh, uh, look back in your own history and look back to the 30s when, when uh, the lefties were prevalent in, 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 in your press. Um, uh, the communist sympathizers. I, I, by the way, used to be a communist uh, I'm, uh, until I was about 40. Um, <clears throat> I'm sorry about that. Um, I, later, I later changed my mind. But, but I know a bit about uh, communism, and I know quite a bit about Marxism. And, and uh, if, you look, if you look back, um, you'll see that, that um, the Western press uh, was uh, infiltrated and dominated by, by uh, the left. And if you think that journalists are free spirits, then you're sadly mistaken. Uh, they're looking out for the next paycheck and for the easy way to, to, to make a living, and that is you, you get to work at 10 and you leave at 3, um, and, and uh, you write the same thing that everybody else writes. So it's a, it's a, it's a kind of uh, it's a kind of uh, elite domination. Uh, it has nothing to do with uh, with what they were really supposed to do: uh, write the truth, uh, investigate, uh, research, etc. And I'm afraid that's it.
Yeah, well, I mean, it's counterintuitive because most news outlets will want to publish the most sensational, the things that are going to garner the most amount of traffic. But I think that shows you that journalism in large part is truly dead. These are not journalists today, at least in the mainstream outlets. These are propaganda vehicles. Journalists are quote unquote mouthpieces. I mean, if you read the New York Times, and of course they're the easiest example to pick on, they actually defended Lars's attacker. They defended um, the axe attack against uh, you know, one of the Danes who actually produced that cartoon. Uh, and this is a journalist who's supposedly exercising his own freedom of speech and supposed journalistic integrity. I mean, it's, it's really laughable that there is this double standard. So I think it shows that mainstream media outlets, uh, they are not embracing journalism. Journalists, journalists are supposed to live for the stories of uncovering injustices and atrocities and human rights abuses, in which case they would be writing about Islam all day long. So I think it's you know the answer is uh, several fold. I think for some, for some editors, let's say they don't view uh, stories about Islam as all that surprising. I think it is actually a given uh, for most people that uh, Islam does uh, support and perpetuate this you know violent uh, theme. So it's not really considered all that sensational anymore. Number one, so some outlets don't really cover it because it doesn't really garner the traffic that they think it should. I think in mainstream outlets they have a political agenda to push, and so their writers are not going to cover those stories because it doesn't fit that editorial agenda. And I think the few journalists who do exist, who do want to uncover these stories, are working for smaller outlets or are independent bloggers. And then, of course, they are marginalized and um, their character is assassinated so that larger outlets will not hire them later. So it's, I think that's a little bit about what's going on. Well, yeah, you're referring to uh, to the chaplain uh, who I who I believe is uh, was was put on leave after that, um, uh, and and the story, frankly, would never have come to light were it not for some uh, some students, uh, uh, including Muslim students, who who were actually appalled uh, by by his statements. It was it was it was considered hikmah, great wisdom to kill apostates. Uh, and recently, this, this idea has been validated by none other than Yusuf al-Qaradawi, who's the spiritual leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, who gave an interview on Al Jazeera and said uh, that he frankly felt that Islam would not have survived, period, if there had not been these, uh, these apostasy laws, which of course run uh, 180 degrees counter to, to freedom of conscience. Um, in, the, in the academy itself, um, you actually have uh, a Canadian law professor who's uh, now deceased, uh, an American who's uh, still alive, uh, writing in law journals the, the why blasphemy law is, uh, I'm sorry, apostasy law is legitimate because they go back to the ancient argument that 
Well, it's, it's, it's sedition. In other words, leaving a Muslim American, a Muslim Canadian, leaving the religion is a seditious act, not in the 7th century, not in the 10th century, not, you know, 200 years ago, now. And I, I, I think that those stories don't get enough attention. Again, this was, these are law professors that, that wrote this. And I think it's up to the academy, another law professor, say someone like Alan Dershowitz, to come out uh, and, 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 and point out to these legal scholars uh, just how uh, insane this is, just how, uh, it, how it runs counter to everything that this society is based upon. And yet we don't see Mr. Dershowitz doing that. And in fact, Harvard, uh, in the law school, that, that where at the same time that he gets awards for being a champion uh, of separation of church and state, Harvard's own law school uh, has a, a program on Sharia law there. Uh, and it's not merely just to give it a sort of a descriptive, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, study. Uh, they, they have lecture series there where uh, the, the theme in the end is that Sharia somehow complements our system of law and could, could perfect it. And so Mr. Dershowitz still sits there and says nothing about this. So uh, there, there are grave problems inside uh, the academy. We have seen, really, that the overarching value that is protected in American universities today is multiculturalism, which is essentially shorthand for saying utter cultural relativism uh, combined with anti-Americanism and anti-Westernism and a hostility to Judeo-Christian values. And this has been uh, the the source of a tremendous inconsistency on the part of leftist academics of all stripes. Uh, here again, the political left is in the ascendancy in the universities and colleges in the United States. And so we see the same kind of authoritarianism and the same hostility to genuine intellectual diversity that uh, we see in the mainstream, in the public discourse. Uh, in the colleges, of course, they're very concerned about diversity of every kind, and they want to have all sorts of uh, uh, genders represented and all sorts of races represented, and I do mean all sorts of genders, you know, not just two. And uh, every kind of diversity except intellectual diversity, where the uh, only opinion that is allowed is that of the leftist orthodoxy. And so the inconsistency manifests itself in precisely this kind of thing, that not only does uh, the idea of the freedom of conscience, the idea of free inquiry, which is the foundation of the university itself, have to be sacrificed to this idea of a multiculturalist relativism that allows for Sharia blasphemy laws under the guise of being receptive to other cultures. But also I've seen again and again and again feminists some very hardline feminists, uh, some of, of, of great stature, including Naomi Klein and Naomi Wolf uh, and uh, Katha Pollitt, who have come out in various ways to defend the oppression of women in Islamic law, because that, again, is their culture. And the women in there, they feel themselves empowered within that system, and so therefore the oppression is OK. And so we see that multiculturalism trumps feminism, multiculturalism trumps free inquiry, but it's all really in service of this leftist authoritarianism, again, in the academy. We're going to take some, oh, 
take some questions from the floor. We have one right here, so let's go ahead. Just in, in the back, he's asking, is there writing in, in, in Quran and other teachings that make the reputation of Muhammad so weak that you can't explore it? Yeah, um, <laughs> it, it's very interesting. When, when um, uh, uh, there was a, uh, a great scholar of Islam and who actually also was, a, was a, um, uh, an Episcopal canon who lived for many years uh, in, in Egypt, uh, 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 Gardner, and um, Gardner was, a, was an outstanding uh, Arabic uh, linguist and, and translator, and also a scholar, particularly of the, the Sufi uh, al-Ghazali. Um, but he once made a comment about, about uh, 40 years before this translation actually appeared. He said, you know, the answer to all these uh, apologetic lives uh, of, of, the, of Muhammad that appear in the West for proselytization purposes would just be for a good translation of the first uh, Muslim, or the earliest Muslim biography of Muhammad uh, by Ibn Ishaq. Uh, and um, fast forward about 40 years, and it, it actually was done by, by this uh, scholar, Guillaume, and I remember reading a review of it by, uh, by another scholar, Jeffrey, uh, who said that uh, you know, Canon Gardner's prayer had been answered, and, and if you want to look at the character of Muhammad and, and, and um, have, a, have an alternative to these, uh, to these narratives, is just, just read the Muslim uh, materials on Muhammad. And, and, and one of the best, I think the very best in modern times, was Roberts. Uh, Robert, Robert uh, wrote a, an absolutely brilliant, uh, short, accessible uh, analysis uh, of Muhammad, uh, focusing on, on the things, frankly, that are most important to non-Muslims. Um, and he just used the basic sources. It's <laughs> the truth about Muhammad. <laughs> I got that right? <laughs> the truth about Muhammad. Um, you know, so, so, so we have these materials, and, and unfortunately, you know, when you, when you hold them up to the light of day and just objective inquiry that we just take for granted in the West, um, it's, it's not a terribly compelling biography. I'm, I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. Now, it, 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 if, it's, if, it's, if it's seen through a certain kind of pious prism, I guess you could come up, come away with a different take on it, but it, but if you view it and read it according to the way, to the standards that we're you know used to be trained in anyway in terms of analyzing things objectively, um, it, it's it's not a terribly compelling picture, and and that is an act of blasphemy to not appreciate it in a compelling way. In the end, is an act of blasphemy. In fact, blasphemy itself is really an act of war. If you look at what the jurists are saying about blasphemy for non-Muslims in particular. Um, it, you, you're, you're, you, are, you are putting yourself in, in these kinds of criticisms literally on a war footing, and your life becomes licit. Robert? All the things that you've heard about Muhammad are true. Uh, he, he waged wars. He ordered his enemies assassinated. He consummated a marriage with a nine-year-old when he was 54. 
all these things and more are in the canonical biographies of Muhammad that are written by Muslims for Muslims and are the earliest available sources on which all others depend, all biographies of Muhammad ever since depend on these early sources. And so these are what Muslims know about what Muhammad said and did. But it's important to note that Islamic blasphemy law specifies not that it is a death penalty offense to tell a lie about Muhammad. It is a death penalty offense, quote, to mention something impermissible about Allah, Muhammad, or Islam. In other words, there are a lot of things they would prefer you did not know about Muhammad. Because Muhammad, according to the Quran, is the excellent example of conduct, the highest example to follow. If he did it, it's good, and you should do it. So that means you can marry a kid. You can go out and have your, again, kill your enemies or order them killed if you have the power, and so on. And you should do those things and more, because Muhammad did them. But Muhammad also said war is deceit, and to lull the infidels into complacency is a very important weapon in war. And one way they do that is to accuse those who have spoken about, who have laid bare what is really in these canonical biographies of Muhammad. They say, we're making it up. And Professor Khalil Muhammad of the University of California, San Diego, he contacted me after my book, The Truth About Muhammad, came out. And he said, I can't believe you wrote this horrible book full of lies. And you actually have said that Muhammad married his daughter-in-law. Well, you know, I thought that was amazing that I made that up because that's in the Quran, chapter 33, verse 37. And it's extensively explained in, the, in these early, in Ibn Ishaq and the early biographies of Muhammad. And so I'm pretty good that I was able to get that in there. My Zionist black arts, I cast it into the Quran itself. <laughs> and so, uh, I'm sorry, but just in, uh, the point is that there's a great deal of confusion about what Muhammad was really like because you have Karen Armstrong and these other paid apologists saying he's like Gandhi. But you go back to the original sources and you see what he's really like. And the thing is, Muslims are reading those and acting upon them, and that's why the world is in flames. It's pretty obvious, at least to me, that Islam uses our laws and our society against us. I mean, it, that's at least what I see. You're speaking to the converted and it needs to be done, and you are amazing. But my thought is this, and maybe it would get us all killed, who knows? I would love to see someone, somewhere, somehow, start a dialogue with these Muslim apologists and put this out in the open so that there could be an opportunity to really challenge them in a public forum, which I have never seen it happen anywhere. Well, let's start with Lars. Lars, what happens when you confront the apologists and present arguments? Are they willing to debate? No, no. You can't, you can't debate these people because they are not willing to, to, to listen to arguments. Um, so uh, give it up. Um, what you have to do is to, to stand up and uh, proclaim your rights, um, say what you want, and expose these people because they're not willing to, to, to listen to arguments. Um, I was listening to my, to my friend uh, Robert. Um, uh, all that is said about Muhammad is true. Uh, well, the truth is he never existed, um, as many people are aware, including, I believe, uh, yourself. And um, another eminent uh, scholar, uh, Professor Hans Janssen from Holland, 
who, uh, who wrote a uh, very good biography uh, based on Ibn Ishaq's uh, book from, I believe, 7051. Right, 751. Um, I've been making about 16 speeches since I came to the US, so, so I get mixed up. Um, this cannot be debated. You cannot debate uh, the, the, the sources of Islam and the way we are used to debate anything else in our, uh, in our culture, including, uh, as you may know, that um, eminent scholars for example, at the University of Copenhagen, uh, claim that uh, King David never existed. Um, the Bible story about, uh, about uh, David and, and, and uh, Solomon, etc., uh, is a total invention. Um, it is, of course, not an invention because they've found some things, that in, uh, archaeological f facts that indicate that they did exist. Um, but uh, I th it's, a, it's, a, it's an honest argument. For God's sake, let, let uh, the, the uh, experts and the, the specialists argue about that. We've had uh, biblical um, criticism in the West for the last uh, 300 years. Um, back and forth. You are not allowed to even raise these questions uh, within the um, confines of, of uh, Islam. And that is the most troubling, very troubling aspect of it. Uh, it is the total breakdown of our um, understanding of scholarship, our universities, our logic. It will all go down the drain unless we stand up and claim our right to discuss and, and to elucidate. Thank you. We've got, we're going to get some questions in, and we're getting towards the end of the time, so we'll start with the gentleman in the hat right here. Uh, 
yes, we're fighting against irrationality. We're fighting for individual rights against collectivism. We're fighting for rationality against irrationality. Lars alluded to uh, that I've uh, written a book that was called Did Muhammad Exist? I wrote a biography of Muhammad, but then went back in another book, Did Muhammad Exist? and evaluated the, the historical value of those sources, and there really isn't much. There's no real evidence that Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, ever existed. And the reason why I'm talking about this now is because I did debate this with Anjum Chowdhury, who's a very famous imam in Britain. And uh, he said, he kept saying, of course Muhammad existed. It's in the Quran. <laughs> and this is, this is what we have. There's no tradition of rational discourse or free inquiry within Islam. The Quran tells you don't question about things that are hard to understand. And it criticizes the Jews. It says the Jews say Allah's hand is chained and may their own hands be chained. What does it mean that Allah's hand is chained? It means that he's constrained and he's not constrained, which means that he's absolute will. Whereas in the West, they were able to say that there might be some consistent and observable laws on which nature was based and science developed. But because in, in Islam, there was this idea that Allah was absolute will, and he could change anything that he wanted at any time. There was no point in observing the natural law and science, natural order of things. Science never developed. Now, what do we do against this great irrationality that is sweeping in the world? Well, it depends on where you are and what your, what your own situation is and what your talents are. There are many good groups to join. There is the American Freedom Defense Initiative, of which I'm the associate director. There are many, many others that are fighting this fight. There are things that you can do in your own communities, individually and in groups. The, the Islamic supremacists are working, and they're doing something right where you are. Find out what it is, expose who they are, and stop them. You can do it. Nobody else is going to do it for you. And it, what you can do in your particular situation depends on you and your own time and your own talent and your own abilities and your own perspectives. So only you can ultimately answer that question. But yes, it's all up to us. And nobody is going to take care of this on our behalf. Lars? I am uh, thinking about the question of irrationality. It can be uh, described as, as, uh, as uh, Robert just did. You could also look at it from a different perspective. Um, if you look at um, military theoreticians throughout uh, the ages, you've heard about Sun Tzu, perhaps. You may have heard about uh, Clausewitz, um, others who have laid out the, the laws uh, of war, uh, strategies and tactics. But um, the supreme... Um, strategists in history is really this non-existent uh, character uh, called Muhammad. Um, I don't know who made up uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Quran. We, uh, it's, it's a late invention uh, if we think that, that uh, Muhammad died in uh, 632. Right, yes. Uh, um, whether or not he existed uh, is a matter of, of uh, debate. Uh, but somebody, uh, over the next 200 years or so, uh, made up a body of, of uh, canonical texts describing this, uh, this character and what he was supposed to have uh, thought and, and, and done. The main characteristic 
of, of Mohammed uh, or this fictional character as a strategist is that his war, and Islam is a war, uh, does not depend on, on any, any organized body. It does not depend on, on, on state power. It does not depend on an empire. It is lodged in the head of every Muslim who is a believer, which means that Islam can wage wars without uh, any state. Um, it is incumbent on every uh, Muslim uh, who wants to go to paradise to conduct jihad, a holy war, which is not war in our sense of the, of, of the word. It is a, uh, it's incumbent on, on every Muslim to wage this jihad in every way that is possible and feasible. Um, um, it can be done by demanding cultural rights, it, it is waged by demanding that schools only serve halal food, uh, that boys and girls don't swim together, that uh, women wear the hijab, the, the, uh, uh, they wrap themselves up in uh, meters of yards of, of clothing, etc. Et You've got to understand that no society that I know of has ever been able to integrate believing Muslims in their midst. Whenever orthodox, believing Muslims come into a society, there is automatically a battle for the control of that society. And you've got to realize that, and that's why it is not enough that you individually do what you can and you should. You've got to organize. You've got to stand up in organizations. You've got to back your rabbi. You've got to tell your uh, Jewish leaders uh, that this is a fight for our very existence and for the, for the, for the goodness of mankind and for all that we, we hold dear. You've got to understand that. Uh, you have so many more questions. We're just out of time. The, the folks are going to be here for a while. Have a great